meeting to order. Um, and can we take the roll, please? Yes. Trustee Zorthian? Here. Trustee DeVries? Here. Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Lawrence? Here. We have a block. Thank you. Um, and now we will be uh, going into closed session, and we will let all of you know when uh, we to come back. Yes, yeah, so the uh, closed session is to consider the credentialing reports from each of the facilities and discussion of a couple of items in government code section 94956.9. Thank you. So, uh, that brown and yellow. <laughs> that combination is so nice. We'll so call the meeting back into open session. Do we need to note that in the meantime, Trustee Jensen and Banerjee, Trustees Jensen and Banerjee arrived? Yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> so no. Trustee Banerjee got here first. Oh, okay. <laughs> I got the. Wait, two seconds. <laughs> did, did you get a parking slot? I thought I snagged the last one. All right. Um, so, uh, open session. We are. We have minutes, which I will entertain a motion to approve. Mm -hmm. Is there a second? Do you have time to read them? Yeah. Second. Okay. All those in favor? Aye. 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 As well? I abstain. Okay. And Trustee DeBreeze is out of the room. Um, but the minutes pass, are approved. And then for the policies, let me just give you a little preamble here. We have two sets of policies here. The policies in May were approved, but we um, they were listed wrong on the agenda. Mm -hmm. So Mike felt that we needed to be more, be specific that the policies, that we're approving the policies that are actually posted. Um, and so we will re-entertain the May, uh, policies and then the June policies are as as you see them uh, in the meantime when Michelle looked back and uh, she noticed that a lot of the policies for May did not have the notation about when they had gone through the medical executive committee meetings for for um, approval we worked on this yesterday we verified that they had all gone through but the dates hadn't been noted and I guess none of us noticed that in the last month so they are, I think, reposted, I believe, because I looked at them today and they all said the dates. There is one um, policy that is, it was in the packet, in, in the on board effect twice. It's the space committee policy, which was not actually a, approved by MEC, was approved by the ELT. However, uh, it's posted twice, and the second time there's apparently some little improvement in it, 
but I couldn't get a hold of Cheryl to figure out what the change was. So um, I suspect it's something quite minor, and I think we could go ahead and improve it, but there was that one little glitch. Everything else was fixed. So are we happy to go ahead and approve these policies? Having read all of them, I move approval. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And oh. they have all gone through MEC. They have all, except the space committee right. policy, which went right. through the executive team because it's not a right. medical right. staff okay. policy. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. All those in favor? Aye. 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 And I too. So the policies are approved. Both months work. Okay. Uh, medical staff reports. Um, Dr. Hearn, first on the list. Thank you. Um, <coughs> Reports for uh, for QPSC relatively small. Uh, just know that there's a we are we have an ongoing um, bylaws revision, which uh, we should be done with in the next month or so. Um, we have a number of other policies and procedures that uh, are in the process of being um, uh, going through procedure uh, going through MEC. Since we are in a joint commission survey window, it's just a matter of sort of tightening up the policies and making sure that the revisions are appropriate and on time. Um, as uh, in keeping with the prior notes, the MEC voted to, to implement the Maslach burnout inventory to all of the medical staff to assess burnout. Um, and uh, I have a number of other things in open session. Um, but that's it for my QPSC report. Okay. Who's next? Um, uh, Joel. Joe. Yes. Uh, currently uh, reviewing our policy and procedures. There's a lot more to come. Um, a lot of it been outdated. It hasn't been uh, updated since um, 2013. So uh, hopefully they'll be done by uh, July and uh, MEC. And uh, we're also working on a transfer guideline uh, between uh, San Angelo Hospital and uh, Alameda Hospital. And uh, we uh, this we almost had it finalized in uh, the. Uh, the chair of uh, surgery uh, had one more um, point they want to add that they want uh, life-threatening uh, surgical emergency to be transferred directly to uh, OR and uh, especially for a vascular uh, emergency to min minimize the delay in uh, getting the patient to OR and get the uh, appropriate care. Mm -hmm. And with that uh, addition, uh, we approved the trans uh, transfer policy uh, guideline and now uh, that's going to be um, uh, sent back to Alameda Hospital because this is a policy that the transfer can go either way. It can go from San Angelo to Alameda or Alameda to San Angelo Hospital. And that's um, the ongoing uh, the process going, going right now. Thank you. And. Uh, Dr. Ye covering, Dr. Jim Ye covering for LPDO. Yes, uh, we had a uh, unannounced survey for our post-acute uh, survey for uh, CDPH, and uh, we they found six deficiencies amongst our um, three campuses or three units, uh, which is actually pretty good because the state average is 12 uh, deficiencies per site, and so. We average two per site, um, and uh, Richard may give us more details of, of the findings. 
Uh, many of the findings were immediately fixed, and we have planned to correct some of the uh, the other ones. So, it's a good job for everybody. Anybody have any questions for any of the three? So I'm just curious about the policy, the transfer policy or procedures. Do, I mean, do we anticipate this will improve access for patients uh, and, <coughs> and throughput, for that matter? <coughs> yes, uh, that's. Uh, in the past, uh, everything needs to go through uh, the ED, and uh, that's going to, uh, a lot of time, that's unnecessary. The patient uh, clearly has been uh, evaluated and doesn't necessarily need uh, another stay in the ED, putting another few hours or, uh, onto this uh, stay, and also increase the overcrowding uh, problem in the ED. So with this uh, transfer uh, guideline that we can, uh, patient can go directly to the floor, directly to the ICU, directly to the OR with uh, bypassing ED if necessary. Of course, if a patient's uh, condition changes, deteriorate, they should come to the ED for stabilization before going forward. So uh, specifically that this transfer policy that you're working on is between Alameda and San Leandro. It's not including the core, is that right? Uh, no, there is actually a transfer center uh, here. Uh, here at Highland Hospital, mm -hmm. and that's what we go, th uh, go through if we want to transfer to Highland Hospital. Right. So what kinds of reasons would you want to transfer from one to the other community hospitals? Usually uh, bed availability and also uh, most uh, uh, Common is the availability of the specialist. There's certain specialists that uh, are available, like uh, for example, uh, GI specialists uh, that can do ERCP. That's available at uh, Alameda Hospital, and also vascular surgeon. We have a very robust vascular service at San Diego Hospital, and um, you know, uh, for patients who require vascular service, they usually require transfer to uh, San Angelo Hospital. So do these um, transfers, is this transfer of any patient who's admitted either through the ER or already on the floor of each, either hospital? Uh, they apply mostly to uh, the emergent patient that came from the ER. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, moving on to the SBU Quality Metric Report, Host Acute and Behavioral Health. Well, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. I'm Richard Espinoza, the CAO for Post Acute Services. And today with me, I have Dr. Lance Stone. And a correction, he is the uh, DO and Chair of Rehabilitation Medicine for the system. And then Shelly Stumadek, who is our acute rehab. Uh, program director for our acute rehab unit. And so I will speak to the first for SNFs and subacute, and then have uh, Dr. Stone and Shelley speak on the acute rehab specifically. Great. So at a high level, we have 181 post acute beds at Alameda, 26 at South Shore, 120 beds at Park Ridge, and 35 subacute beds at uh, Alameda Hospital, and then 159 at Fairmont, which includes, sorry, which includes 109 SNF and subacute beds and 150 acute rehab beds. So we have a total of 348 post-acute beds in the system. 
as Dr. Ye mentioned, we just uh, two weeks ago had our CDPH CMS uh, annual survey for Alameda. Uh, we did have preliminary findings of six, um, and Dr. Ye did hit it on the head that the average is 12.3 per site. Um, one of the findings we get every year is regarding square footage of South Shore because the rooms don't meet the requirement, so that's an automatic deficiency that we get. Um, and the other five were around uh, residence rights, care planning, dietary and infection control, uh, minor findings. We haven't received our 2567 yet, but we should be receiving that um, by next week. Uh, and then just to touch on that, we had our life safety survey, which began yesterday and ended today, uh, which is usually about one week after the annual survey. And they exited today with a preliminary, preliminary finding of one finding for all three buildings. So what is that, life safety? Uh, they're looking at the physical plant, the fire drills, fire testing, fire doors, fire evacuation plans, generators, flow tests, sprinkler system tests. Uh, it's a pretty in-depth overall uh, review, making sure that we are following the schedule for necessary testing of items, annual hood inspections, or biannual actually, um, and that we've met all of that for each site. Um, and then they do an actual physical review of every site, checking every door, making sure that they latch, making sure that the fire doors are closing when we're testing the doors, making sure staff understand what emergency outlets are for, Etc. So it's a pretty in-depth uh, review. Uh, the occupancy of our SNFs and subacute units run between 96 and 98 percent. Do you want to take questions as we go along? Sure. No, go ahead. I'm going to interrupt you in a minute. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> good to know. Uh, and our acute rehab has been averaging uh, a sense of 18 on a budget of 20. And we're looking at increasing that uh, for fiscal year uh, coming up. Uh, and part of that is staffing, adding more staff so that we can see the more patients and making sure that we're meeting the appropriate ratios. Any questions? Yes. So what, what do you mean 18 on a budget of 20? Uh, so we have budgeted a census of 20 at the acute rehab, and for the year we've averaged a daily census of 18. So on a daily basis, we're averaging about 18 uh, patients. And um, the the 96 to 98% occupancy, is that just at Fairmont? That's all at the SNFs and subacutes. Okay. And so is it safe to assume there's room for growth there? There is, yes. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm sorry not to get down to the business side sure. of things. Um, but uh, is that is this a growth? Is this a special business unit that has potential for growth that actually can help our, our, our bottom line? I mean, are, are we do we get good compensation on these patients, or or is that at a loss? So I would say because our skilled nursing facilities are distinct parts of hospitals, the reimbursement rate is much higher than freestanding staffs. So by being affiliated and on a license of a hospital, the reimbursement is much better than if we were a standalone operation. But, to, but we could use more space. We certainly could use more space, yes. Thanks. I'd also say the populations do vary. The Alameda population on a whole is an older population, uh, so it's more geriatric. And so a lot of those residents have nowhere to be discharged to. And at the Fairmont campus, it's a younger population um, that we're helping to try to get back into the community. We do try all sites to get people back in the community. Um, so that is the ultimate goal. And I'll just point out to my colleagues that when I was at the health committee for the Board of Supervisors a couple weeks ago, when they were talking about St. Rose, I learned that out of their 210 beds, they're only using about 70. Um, so there's a lot of space there to, you know, that could potentially meet the unmet needs of Alameda County's health care. Just saying. Um, I'm, not, I'm not understanding the bed, the acute 
rehab, it's 50 beds, is that what you're saying? Yes. But you budgeted for 20. So when we took a deeper dive, um, staffing is one of the items that we need to look at so that we can make sure we're making, meeting the appropriate ratios. I see. So we are looking at adding additional staff so we can increase the census. I see. Okay. Well, and let me also say that we have been quoting numbers of licensed beds but not going anywhere near using all of those licensed beds for years for various reasons. People have been using beds I mean, hospital rooms as offices for years. So it's not the licensed bed number is completely is not does not reflect our usual use or inpatient occupancy. If I could put a, a light onto that, 50 beds means six patients in a room, and we're competing against Altivates and other rehabs. It means what? Six patients per room. Yeah, that, that's the way it's set up. It's an older building, and, and that's how it, it is placed. And we typically run three to four patients in a room, and we have very high uh, satisfaction scores with that. But uh, when we push that six level, it, it becomes not so happy of patients. And sure. that's just acute rehab, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. And then I'd say on the SNP and subacute sides, we are running at our licensed bed capacity. Mm -hmm. So six people per room is not a violation of any of our. No, ma'am, it's not a violation. But no one wants to do it. Correct. Yeah. Right, absolutely. There's a lot of there's choice for rehab as much as there is for a SNP, but with that choice. Um, but we've also done, I have to say also in our defense, we've done a lot of things this last year to try to make it um, a little bit more viable and a little more uh, of a desirable place to be. Mm -hmm. And we have very good care there, even despite that. But yeah, just so you, to tell you what that 50 best means. Mm -hmm. uh, so just under some quality metrics, um, Part of our five-star rating for the skilled nursing facilities and subacute units is health inspections, staffing, quality measures. And so the Alameda SNFs and subacute unit are five-star rated, five out of five. This is all publicly reported information. Um, our surveys are also publicly reported. And so if you go to the uh, website, CMS Nursing Home uh, Compare, it lists the facilities, uh, deficiencies, uh, life safety, and annual surveys. Uh, the Fairmont SNF and Subacute are four-star rated in every category. Um, they were a five-star facility, but CMS in January changed the quality metric score, and so they've added about another 500 points. And so where their current score is would put them at a five-star if it were in December. In January, it's putting them at a four-star, and how they calculate the five-star rating includes uh, the health inspection plus the quality measures. Uh, so it, it has dropped them to four stars just by changing the, the number of points um, that's in the quality measures. We have watch metrics that we watch throughout our uh, post-acute environment, which is our HAPIs, our psychotropic medication use falls, falls with injury and weight loss, and I have psychotropic medication <coughs> use in red, um, as that's one of the areas that <coughs> Fairmont is working on, and so we've implemented a monthly psychotropic uh, reduction meeting which has the pharmacist, the physicians, psychologists, social workers, and so uh, in attempts to try to reduce the usage of the medications with our residents in that environment. Oh, not, no, those are actually psychiatric medications that are sometimes used 
help patients be calmer or, or whatever. But that that you must have some patients that actually need them because they have psychiatric diagnosis. We do. And so but the standard is that we need to constantly review to make sure is there a potential that we can reduce it by right, some. Right. And if there's not boxes of meds laying around? Well, we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then some of the quality measures that we monitor are uh, items that are, again, CMS reported, uh, functional improvement uh, from a resident from admission to discharge, uh, pain, rehospitalization, short stay, outpatient emergency visits, um, and discharges back into the community. That's why on our uh, system dashboard that we were looking at, uh, have been looking at our returns to the acute, um, as that's one of the CMS metrics that the post-acute was above the state average, and currently we are now below the state average by implementing new systems and monitoring it more closely. Richard, um, just to go back to the psychotropic medication for a second, sure. that's, that's because um, it's probably more used in the, um, not the acute, but in the, in the SNP or in the long-term care for patients who are seniors or who are have dementia or agitation or and there are Alzheimer's? Very, yes, and so there are very specific rules around antipsychotic medication use with the diagnosis of dementia, and so they want to make sure that we're using medications appropriately. Right. But because the majority of our residents are long-term, we want to make sure that we're monitoring it consistently and not just complacent with the current dose, but seeing what we can do over yeah. time with other interventions right. that are non-pharmacological. I mean, as opposed to John George, where the, they would definitely be using psychotropic <clears throat> meds, uh, you know, more often to calm patients. These are more for um, training purposes for seniors or older people who have dementia and um, agitation or, or some other organic kind of... Uh, Correct. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> We also do a lot of staff uh, care competencies and program development. So we've done um, tools such Interact, which is the reduction to acute care transfers, uh, where we do uh, SBAR monitoring, not only from the licensed nurse standpoint, but now from CNAs if they notice any type of changes within our residents that are unusual. They're speaking less, they're eating less, usually a sign that something may be going on so that we can help with the reduction of a transfer and try to give care sooner than later. This is just kind of a glance of one of the um, PI templates that we're using and information for the, the uh, post-acute at Alameda. Uh, so we look at medication errors, non-behavioral restraints. We also take items from our annual surveys and place them on our monthly uh, performance improvements so that we can make sure that we're continuing to monitor and don't fall back into an item that may have been defi a deficient practice, but making sure we're staying on top of it. And that's one was a pre-printed anticoagulation form. Um, where we're at 100%, and then psychotropic medication management in the Alameda facility is at 100%. So we do track this on a quarterly basis. We have monthly quality assurance performance improvement committees, so they're constantly working on a multitude of watch metrics and PI items. Um, we have dropped our restraints from seven to two currently, and so it, it is a constant work in progress. And will you be using these are going to be used at Fairmont as well? So Fairmont does currently have its own dashboard as well, okay. and there are the standard watch metrics that all of them use, mm -hmm. but then based on findings that we do within our internal audit, so if we right. find an issue, we'll add it to the PI program so we can Specific continue to monitor to Correct. So all of them will have some variation based on an issue that might be mm -hmm. at that site. Okay. Thank you. By the way, I just want to say these numbers are phenomenal. 
We do, um, we do work very hard. Uh, the teams are, we do a lot of training. We do what's called smart training, which is survey management and readiness training. So we're constantly training to the regs, constantly training to the practices, best practices. And so that leads in part to the CMS five-star rating is that the teams really understand the regulations, they work towards them. There are things that will happen, um, but on the whole, we try to try to really work on our best practices and identifying best practices within other organizations and seeing if we can utilize them too. Never get 100%. I wanted to give you just something kind of more fun and exciting <coughs> than just falls and happies. And currently, this is a Fairmont performance improvement project that they're working on, which is around meals. And meals are very difficult to get high satisfaction scores because I like spicy and some folks don't, and uh, we all like different things. Um, but the Fairmont team has done an incredible job at working with the residents. We have resident council meetings every month, and we're getting their input on items that they would like, both cultural items that they're used to, things that they would like. Um, and this is just an example of some of the items that we've uh, introduced at the Fairmont uh, campus, which is basmati rice, naan, chana masala, uh, some just more interesting items than uh, you find on a traditional menu. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Come on down. <laughs> and so we do a biannual um, satisfaction survey, which includes residents and family members. And so if a resident is unable to participate, we want to make sure we encourage the families to participate. And so we're about to um, embark on ours for Fairmont. And so we, we will want to see that the meal scores hopefully have increased. I'll turn this over to Dr. Stone and Shelley, who will talk more specifically about <coughs> the uh, acute rehab. I'll go ahead and start. So our average daily census that we talked about is 18. And uh, I uh, included also what our admissions have been and, and so that you can see that we've had a tremendous growth. And actually this year we're going to experience even more. Um, and then also with our CARP accreditation, we have to track our numbers for stroke because we're also going for a stroke accreditation with our uh, medical. And so I also added those numbers there for you also. I, I thought something that was interesting is for you to see what our average patient age is. It's 53. It's rather young in comparison to most. Uh, and, and what we track ourselves against is a region. Um, and then our patient population, um, you would think it would be 50-50, but actually 66% of our patients are men. So um, if you uh, need some expertise on how to deal with young gentlemen, we probably can help you out with that. <laughs> We've done a lot of cultural um, and diversity training with that, which seems like that would be an odd thing, but it, it is for us. And then I just included the admission criteria for acute rehab, which all of you can read, but I think sometimes people don't quite understand the difference between us and a skilled nursing facility, and it's very distinct, the difference between us. Have you seen this um, population and the patient mix change in the past four or five years with the, um, the, <coughs> the uh, increased number of men in Medicaid or with um, any reflection on the Affordable Care Act? I, I can't speak to that. I've just been here for a little bit over a year and a half. I, I would ask Dr. Stone. No, I don't think so. Uh, the uh, age and the um, split between males and females is about the same. Thank you. Yeah. And it's primarily because you have so much trauma. Uh, trauma and um, you know, typically patients who are on a rehab unit uh, uh, are uh, uh, there as a result of a stroke, and uh, our patients um, you know are not of the Medicare population; they're much younger and tend to be male. 
trauma, auto accidents, and so forth. So spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury are more male-related, a little more testosterone, huh? <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for um, inviting us. And I'm going to share with you some of the um, quality and uh, patient safety uh, metrics. Uh, the first item uh, in front of you is the uh, uh, FIM gain. So for those of you who are not familiar with this, uh, this is a um, uh, outcome measure, um, a quality measure, so to speak. And what we're looking at here is uh, how disabled the patients are at admission and how disabled they are at discharge. Um, there is a standardized uh, uh, battery that's administered to patients both at admission and discharge, and the uh, staff is trained in how to administer this. Um, we use uh, as a metric uh, both uh, regional and national data, and um, we've set our goal for uh, uh, the upcoming year to be a 30, 30 uh, uh, point change and where the patient is at admission and where the patient is at discharge. Last year, it was at 28, so we've done pretty well. Um, I think, I don't want to walk you through the weeds here, but I want to point out a couple of things. This is a measure, so it's, it's a seven-point scale, and what it's looking at really is how uh, able the patients are to dress, uh, toilet, uh, are they continent, are they able to um, uh, perform their ADL activities. So it has seven domains within it. But it can be influenced by a lot of other factors. So for example, if a patient um, comes to rehab quite early, um, let's say after a stroke, um, they may not have as robust a recovery as a patient, let's say, who's had a hip replacement. Um, so the, the length of stay, the age of the patient, how quickly the patient comes into the rehab unit may influence this. So your, your, your data can be contaminated. So what I'm trying to share with you is it's very important um, to make sure that when you're comparing your data to another rehabilitation unit in the community, that their patient population uh, both in diagnosis and how quickly they come to you and the age of the patients are comparable. And also when you're looking at your own data year to year, you want to make sure that those, those uh, variables haven't changed. Otherwise, you may get the impression you're doing really well or you may get the impression you're not doing quite well. Um, so that, that's just something to keep in mind. And we do, we do uh, look at that. So um, for another easy example would be the length of stay. So if you had a patient, for example, um, who made great gains in their FIM score, but were on the rehab unit for, for let's say, a month and a half um, versus a pa patient with the same diagnosis um, and was there for a week, that, that's quite, quite different. Your, your FIM scores may be much better, but it took you much longer to do that. So you want to also measure your efficiency, how long the patient was on the unit to make that uh, gain in, in uh, function. Um, and lastly, I just want, uh, I'm sorry, one other point. I uh, just want to mention that um, you, you need to have a re reliable program here, so our therapists are also trained, um, and they go through retraining yearly to make sure that they're able to administer the battery correctly. So I'm sorry, you had a question? Uh, I do. Um, are you, do you keep data relative to um, a diagnosis or the cause of strokes? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, what I'm thinking about is, is at what point in time we can do as a community prevention. So if it's related to diet and diabetes and that, that has caused the stroke or 
Is it kept in that manner? I, I don't know. No, Shelley uh, can help me with this, but I believe for, for the uh, data that we collect, it will just basically be entered as a stroke. Now, um, the hospital, in terms of their coding, probably has this at a more granular level in terms of location of the stroke, intracerebral hemorrhage, ischemic stroke, and so forth. Um, so, but for the data that we collect, it's just entered as stroke. And we do look at the subdiagnosis. So we look at our program overall in terms of how we're doing with all of our patients, whether it's stroke, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury. But then we also, as you can see here, we look at individual diagnoses. But I don't think that really answers your question. Uh, but I know I don't want to get too off uh, target okay. here, because uh, but we do do a lot of lifestyle modification in terms of you know trying to help patients understand um, the importance of diet. Uh, medication compliance, making sure that they're connected to a primary care physician. Um, so that does occur, but um, no. And, and yeah, but it's after the fact, and so I'm trying. Oh to, yes, yes. Yeah, I'm trying to think through what what organizations like ours can do as we look at population health. Yes. What we can do more for prevention if we have in fact had a history and diagnosed what are causes that are yes. created in our community, you know? Yeah, I, I think that would be more on the uh, ambulatory front, but okay. I can say this, we're certainly interested in making sure that somebody at 55 years of age doesn't experience a second stroke, right. um, so. It's also just incredibly difficult to, to, to pinpoint the an exact cause. You can look at risk factors, and while that is tracked, um, you know, do they have a stroke because they have hypertension, or do they have it because they're smoking, or it's... It's really a, combinant, you know, a, a right. combination of factors in, in most cases, and it's really hard to pinpoint an exact cause. But mo those classic risk factors are, are perfect points for intervention that we regularly mm -hmm. talk about. Thank you. The next slide is a little too uh, detailed, but I can just uh, share with you. This has to do with um, uh, outcome as well, equality, and this is discharge to community. And I, I should mention these slides I'm sharing with you. These are sort of standard uh, industry rehabilitation hospital metrics that uh, most people are, are looking at nationally. So discharge to community is a very important uh, metric and uh, the threshold here is we're really looking at about 80% uh, to achieve uh, patients uh, returning to a community, not a skilled nursing facility. And I think the staff and Shelley and her team do a remarkable job given the social barriers and constraints that our patients have in terms of uh, housing or inaccessible housing. So they do they do a remarkable job as well as our social workers, of course. And, um, you know, just to kind of uh, uh, underline, we, we, you know, basically take all patients. We don't, if a person is homeless, we don't use that as a reason not to admit them. We just try to find a, a discharge destination for them. So um, um, I, think, I think we're doing quite well in terms of being creative and rehabilitating our patients to a high a functioning level to achieve a community discharge. Uh, the other item on here is, um, and this is a very important one, this is transferred to a acute uh, level of care. In other words, this is an interruption of their hospitalization on rehab. So we want to try to ensure that patients, where our patient selection is good and we're providing good medical care, that uh, patients are not discharged to an acute care hospital during their rehabilitation stay. The community standard is usually around 10 to 12%. It's certainly influenced if you're taking sicker patients. Um, 
and um, we um, are usually below 10%. I should also mention we have a QRC committee that we share with psychiatry that I started with the uh, psychiatric team, and we have internal medicine, and all patients who are transferred where their stay is interrupted, all those uh, patients uh, are, are reviewed at our QRC committee to try to identify uh, room for improvement. Can I ask a quick question since you raised the issue of homeless uh, population? Uh, uh, it's the population I get to work with a lot at the city. Um, <clears throat> do you think that has anything to do with the, the age of our patients that, that, that we have? Uh, and how do, we, do you track what, what percentage of patients are unsheltered before they come to you? No, we do not. We don't have that data. Um, some patients we bring in, we think they are housed, but they suddenly become unhoused once we have them. Um, but we, we don't have the ability really to track that. I think that, I, w I just want to also say, understanding that a lot of our patients are homeless um, and young gentlemen, um, I think that's something for the board to know and to be able to, to hang your hat on is, is that your rehab is doing a very good job to get 81% of our patients back home yeah. or to the community. And the community could be a board and care, a shelter, or we find a family member who suddenly or wants to, wants to take their family member home and take care of them. Because um, the, the national standard is 74%. So um, I have to say that this is a metric that makes me the most proud because that's where I want to see our patients is back home. You guys should be proud. Um, really, you should. It's amazing. But I'm also curious about that uh, return to community. If they don't have a, a, a place to... What happens? If, if they're unsheltered, where are you returning them to? We're, we're sending them to boarding cares or um, family well, members. Um, we don't discharge anyone. If we don't discharge, if that's not the case, then we try to find a skilled nursing facility that will perhaps take them. And so some of you are skilled. I'm sorry. Or they go to our Fairmont or Alameda system somewhere. Or they stay on the unit. Um, so in other words, let's say they've completed their, their assigned rehabilitation staff. 18 days, 21 days, I don't know if that was me. Uh, we, we don't discharge anyone to an unsafe environment, so they would stay on the unit, and we've had patients who may have completed their rehabilitation and end up staying on the unit until um, maybe they continue to improve or a, uh, a viable discharge plan is identified. They may be on the unit for weeks or months, so nobody is ever discharged to an unsafe setting. So, I may have missed this. Uh, how long is the average amount of time that you would have someone at the unit? So for the general overall unit, for the acute is, Shelley, what is it, 14 Our days? Our average length of stay is down to 12 days. Okay. Yes. Yeah. A year ago, it was 21 days. <laughs> that's not just We, we started a staff education. That's, that's a trend in rehabilitation, so I think this brings up something for another discussion, and that is, we need to have a much more robust outpatient yeah. program because most of the recovery patients are experiencing now is really on an outpatient basis. Mm -hmm. 12 days is basically enough to get you medically stable and enough for a family member to many times to care for you. But in terms of somebody's recovery from a stroke or spinal cord injury, we're looking at several months and I think we need to really build up our capacity to provide outpatient rehabilitation services, not just at Fairmont, but within our whole system and in the community. So I think we're underserved in that area. Okay, I'm gonna, we just need to keep moving. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, well, I'm, 
just about finished here. Patient satisfaction. Um, I, I should mention this is probably true throughout the system. You know, our numbers are quite low in terms of the number of patients we're able to capture. Um, but what has been pretty consistent, it's not on this slide, in terms of when we do uh, survey patients, probably the number one concern is patients do not feel prepared for discharge. Mm -hmm. So that seems to come up uh, frequently. We've also met with Prescani, and they shared with us this is an important metric to work on. So what we've done to try to improve that is um, <clears throat> trying to encourage and have patients and families uh, attend the uh, team family conference, to have the physician to be uh, a little bit more proactive in meeting with the patient, and um, to, to try to really um, um, have, have the, the patient and family much more involved in the discharge planning very early on. And um, um, something we continue to work on, and I think we're making improvement. And Shelley mentioned sometimes the facility is working against us a little bit. There's no TVs in the rooms. There's um, some, not a lot of creature comforts. But I think in spite of all of that, patients are quite happy with their with their care. Um, this is a, a safety um, a, a metric, and this will be the last slide, and this is basically uh, three items that we're um, uh, monitoring. Uh, Catheter-acquired urinary tract infections, uh, pressure wounds, and falls. And uh, we've had uh, uh, no uh, catheter-acquired urinary tract infections in those uh, three quarters that uh, are on the slide. And um, our, um, let's see here, our, um, I'm sorry, there was one pressure wound and uh, no, no catheter-acquired urinary tract infections. And our, our falls are being addressed through a, uh, both a campus-wide and a, a site-specific uh, fall committee. Yes, sir. Uh, so it occurs to me to, I was thinking, how many catheters are, I mean, what would be the average um, extent of catheterization of the patients in acute rehab? But then, in even a bigger picture, how do your your patients come to you with? When do they get transferred? If they're in acute care, if they've been in it, say someone's been in a young man's been in an auto accident, and he's um, initially on various interventions of ventilation and catheterization and other things. Are there certain things that have to be taken care of before he, they can be transferred? Yeah, we look for medical stability, and the biggest key to it is they have to be able to participate three hours of therapy a day. Um, we don't generally take IV um, pain medication because what we're doing when a patient comes to us is we're continually prepping for home. That's what we're telling our patients. So um, it's a real fine line of where that medical stability is and where that uh, time is to transfer. But um, we try to aggressively transfer the patient sooner than later. Um, some of our training is third day post-stroke, if we can, if they're able, because the outcomes will be a lot better if you can do that. But you would then have to be, with regard to catheterization, if you have a number of patients, or if that's one of the things you're tracking, then you, it sounds like there would be a significant or substantial number of patients coming to you with the catheter. Okay, well, I think there's much greater um, uh, attention upon catheters within the healthcare system and in acute care. So the, the uh, incidence of patients coming over on catheters is, are much less. The patients that do come over, uh, those catheters are removed on day one with the exception of patients who may have an obstructive problem and the catheter remains. So I think, uh, uh, again, it's, it's uh, being managed much better throughout the system, but uh, part of our protocol in rehab is the catheters removed on day one. 
I, I should mention okay. one, other, one other item that you brought up, and that has to do with access. Our, if you compare our data to regional data in terms of when patients enter our rehab system, it's delayed. So I think this is an area that we can really try to improve. Patients are coming to us much later. There's a variety of factors. I don't think we have time to go into that today. But uh, if we, we, we really need to try to have patients enter the rehab program earlier for multiple reasons, prevention of complications, better outcomes. And um, anyways, that's. Well, could you, could you just say quickly, what would be the number one reason why we're seeing well, them later? I, I, I think, I think uh, Shelly helped me, but here's my, it, the referrals from the uh, providers at the acute care setting are delayed. So I think many things can be done to improve upon this in terms of education, getting a rehabilitation consultation earlier, but we're getting the referral at a much later date. Patients can be mobilized and brought over to rehab much earlier, and they're not identified early enough. That would be number one. That might be some education, on, but it's not because you don't have enough beds. Correct. And is that at the core or Alameda or San Leandro? Is that at, are, they, are those referrals coming from our system mostly? 90% of our census is within the system. Okay, so that's important. That's so that, yeah, so that kind of raises a question about like just the transitions of care. So when yeah. the acute front-loading folks so that they can transfer and move to rehab easily and then if you if they have issues such as homelessness and other things for you to have that kind of interoperability so you know that data so you can start looking for things in advance and get them ready to Correct. be out in the community well, so I, I think that's always those transitions that are the tricky part but i would also what we do not have with us for for data is is that mm -hmm. our curve has gone downward in the amount of time from a patient coming to now right. we have made significant leaps mm -hmm. and bounds with that and part of that is our post-acutes teams, all of them, uh, SNFs, subacute, and the acute rehab are working very closely with Sheila Laiswa, who's over care management. Right. And so our teams um, are constantly, we have weekly conference calls, we're reviewing patients, patients who could be transferred. And so that number has significantly dropped. And a lot of it is that the collaboration between the acutes and the post-acutes um, in order to make that a more efficient process. Right. I mean, it's phenomenal what you do despite not having these data at your fingertips. So. Thank you. We appreciate that. We're very proud. Yeah. <laughs> I have to call the student in, but it's just never enough time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank you. As, as, as we're transitioning, I have to just say, uh, Dr. Shorty, in that, that in the, in the board, that, uh, you know, our relationship and our partnership with Rehab Care, uh, Shelly and her team, they've done a phenomenal job. They've contributed to all these successes. Dr. Stone and the work that he does every single day. And I have to say that, you know, all those things that we saw in the, in the uh, skilled nursing facilities and all of our great successes, the great benchmarks, really, you know, great team, great staff, but we have the best administrator in the nation working for us. And, and I really thank Richard for what he does and, and that team. So great work from all of them. Thank you. Great. Dr. Saldana, Dr. Tribble, and uh, Julie Quigley. Thank you. Uh, and we really appreciate that. Uh, we, we may not be the best administration in the nation, but we're aiming to get there. Um, we are very pleased to provide this information. And as we know, it, we are short on time. So what we'll try to do is just of the information and um, indulge any questions you might have to start out. So basically what we will be talking about is uh, behavioral health in terms of the general SVU, what we provide, 
um, regulatory summary and some other aspects that we think may be of particular interest. And again, we're happy to come back and to provide additional information, but this is a snapshot and provide some detailed um, information as far as um, data. One thing um, I think is important for us to note, and we hope later to provide an update both to the board and a quality in terms of that. Is it mine? Yeah, there you go. Maybe there was an underscore. I, I want to underscore <laughs> what I was going to say and emphasize that. Is as you know, the behavioral health uh, um, system of care and continuum, or the SBU, is new within the last few years. So what you see is in terms of the sites, not necessarily, obviously we don't administer and oversee those services, but our, our staff, our team are integrated across um, uh, SBU. I'm very proud to say that we do have a touch and a relationship with all of our sites, including our core and our newly acquired sites as well. Um, particularly, as you know, John George Hospital is, is an inpatient um, and PES psychiatric service inpatient at this point. Uh, there are 69 beds and our PES um, also serves the community as well. Highland, San Leandro, and Alameda hospitals also receive supportive services either by way of actual treatment or consultation or training and uh, the like, just depending on the setting, mm -hmm. as well as our Fairmont, uh, Fairmont and our post-acute and uh, long-term care partners who just presented. One thing I'd like to add, we are recently also bringing on board a, a director of uh, integrated behavioral health. And we hope next month to bring and welcome this person to lead the outpatient side of the house in terms of uh, integrated behavioral health because uh, really to support the work in prime, really to support the work in our EDs and to provide the consultation and services as, as much as we can. We see a lot of effort there already, and in addition to that position, we'll also be bringing on board a psychosocial program administrator, which essentially will overseeing the psychological services, the trainings, and our goal is to increase that, to provide um, more support, not only within our clinical uh, acumen, but in terms of across the sites and uh, uh, four or five new uh, clinical psychologist positions. So we're very active in that role. Um, it also includes uh, our substance abuse program services, which we're also hiring for a supervisor. So again, um, just to reiterate, the continuum of care is how our team is now looking at um, our SBU, as opposed to focusing primarily on the acute, we're also looking at pretreatment and support before a person actually needs psychiatric help. Our hope is to give support on the front end and upstream, that way providing our partners with tools, better tools to really support individuals in the community and in their own uh, setting. Okay. Okay. As was mentioned, um, we recently had uh, the Joint Commission mock survey um, in terms of, and these are some of the areas of opportunity and some of the strengths that were highlighted, as well as areas that we'd like to really approve upon. Uh, some of the areas that we're very proud about, again, were the best practice models and safety, risk assessment, the treatment planning that happens on site, which was uh, very well received, and um, the engagement in communities of quality commitment to quality was evident in terms of the feedback we received. Some of the things that we will be looking at to improve upon is our um, uh, seclusion, excuse me, suicide risk assessment as well as we are looking to provide support to our partners at Highland Hospital. Obviously they are not a psychiatric facility but it's very clear that there, there is an entry point to our psychiatric patients and if there is a hold and they are in the ED then there is safety precautions that need to happen. Um, an environment of care. 
Uh, one of the things that we're really very focused on, which will probably be addressed later, is again the risk assessment and the suicide precautions. We're looking at the Columbia model, which is a best practice standard that we are looking to roll out not only for John George to really have an, an efficient way to evaluate, but also across the system. So that as we're looking at what that means in terms of safety and protocols, we're all speaking the same language. That's a particularly a robust set of tests and, and packages or assessments that you can use depending on the setting. And again, it's very uh, well proven and it can be adapted for outpatient, inpatient, ED, and again, it's best practice. So with that. Thank you very much for having us today. And um, I'm going to begin by presenting about um, PES utilization and volume. As you are uh, likely aware, that was an area of significant uh, concern for us, uh, particularly um, in the early part of 2016. And, and this slide here uh, reflects that we have seen a decline in registrations. These are people presenting for service to PES. Um, you know, it's, it's not like we have a definitive answer about why, but one of the things we implemented in uh, late June of 2016 was a triage uh, presence. And I think what has happened there is that we are seeing a decline in presentations for folks who maybe didn't actually need to be in psych emergency and perhaps they're thinking twice before coming. Now obviously that doesn't mean their needs have gone away, but, but it does mean perhaps they're not coming to psych emergency to get those needs met. The next slide just reflects the number of people that are in PES at any given moment on average. And as you can see, the early part of 2016, we were hovering around 40. Uh, that number has really fallen significantly such that we're seeing an average number of patients in PES at any given moment closer to the high 20s to 30s typically. Charles, it, yes. can I ask a question? Absolutely. What, just to give me an example or two of the kind of people that you think might not be coming to get their needs met anymore? So, um, you know, a psychiatric hospital serves people with various sets of needs and sometimes different blends of needs. Uh, I think one of the types of presentation we, we can see in that environment, I'm sure they come to general medical environments as well, are ones motivated by psychosocial lacks, things like housing, things like just even access to food. And I, and I do think it's important to say that you know it's not like those needs have gone away based on what we've done in PES, but perhaps PES is less of a place to come mm -hmm. sleep the night uh, because you're waiting to be assessed by a doctor. Uh, eliminating that delay, we're often able to uh, see these folks and redirect them uh, to a more appropriate source of... Uh, and are they coming through law enforcement or self, or they, they show up on their own? So certainly people can present by other, uh, either mechanism. We see a majority of people coming via a 5150 hold. Uh -huh. Most of those holds are placed by law enforcement. Right. Uh, we have seen a decline in some of our voluntary presentations, which would suggest some of those folks who have been walking up and, and uh, seeking perhaps a not psychiatrically acute need. So the decline has been in the in the walk up. The it's been in both, walk -up, actually. But it's, it's been, been in both. both. Uh, frankly, a, a, even a 5150 is often a patient complaint based, um, uh, how shall I say, event that, that um, someone might not be as likely to report a certain type of symptom like suicidality in the community leading to a 5150 hole 
in in uh, so they know yeah, bring them right. to judge. Right, uh, right. And yes. Yeah, and, and the other aspect, the triage system, but then the coordination with the other uh, surrounding hospitals where you inform them of where, you know, what your bed capacity is or what your capacity is. And has that kind of where if they are held there, sometimes the acuity goes down and they don't need to be transferred at all. Has that led to the uh, decrease as well? Are you asking about that PES census management? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to talk about okay. that in just Perfect. a moment. Okay. Um, so just to kind of close on this slide, we have seen a decline in the net numbers in PES at any given moment. So the overcrowding of the unit is less of a problem. One thing I'd like to add is just reconciling previous data that this committee and others may have seen before, we are trying to be much more precise with the data. So standing census literally means those individuals who have already been assessed and screened and are in the, in the milieu receiving treatment. And prior to that, we, we may have captured everyone because we did not have the triage in place and literally everyone that came in the door were within the milieu. So at this point, we're able to pre-screen, provide some resource or linkage elsewhere, and so these numbers represent that, with the red being those who have been there more than 24 hours. Yeah, and I think that red bar has gone down as we've been more mm -hmm. able to rapidly screen, <coughs> assess, and achieve right. a disposition for folks. Um, this slide shows the average length of stay in hours for patients presenting to PES. Now, obviously, there's a very wide scatter there, but our goal had been really to try and address people's needs in a more timely manner. Now, we still have some challenges there often in accessing the next level of care, be it an inpatient hospital, be it a, uh, a place for somebody to go um, uh, continue their treatment that's not a hospital. Um, but I do think we have seen some improvements that downward trend does relate in part to the more rapid institution of treatment via the, the triage uh, physicians. And then also, uh, I think, more robust staffing that's allowed us to uh, work through the, the patient volume more effectively. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the PS Census Management Plan. Um, as you observe, this is a mechanism by which uh, there is a temporary hold on interfacility facility and that temporary hold is really only affecting one stream of our intakes. It's about half of the patients, and those are those that are transferred from another emergency mm -hmm. department. When we are on that condition, we continue to receive walk-ins from the community. We continue to receive ambulances that are coming directly from the field. Uh, law enforcement can drop off directly to us. Uh, when this happens, we um, put a notification in a system called ReadyNet, which is a uh, multi-site, meaning in other emergency departments, advising them of our uh, status, and uh, it uh, makes sure that we are also ongoing, in an ongoing way, assessing our capacity and trying to get off that condition as soon as possible so that we're receiving uh, uh, patients again from these other hospitals. Uh, we, we did have a um, one trial implementation prior to our uh, uh, December 1st initiation, and since that time we've had six uh, implementations. You may recall that there was a uh, a lot of thought about having a specific number for capacity. Mm -hmm. Our current system really uh, focuses on a number of factors, including the acuity of the unit, staffing levels, and the number of one-to-one -one patients we have, what time of day is it, are we expecting a lot of discharges in the next few hours, or are we likely to get a whole lot more people coming in? Mm -hmm. And I think what we found is that it's allowed us to um, respond to a much wider variety of circumstances. For example, we certainly have implemented this at times when the census has been quite high, 
Um, and, uh, but on other occasions, we've needed to implement it due to a medical emergency on the unit, or um, we had a, a, a kind of a major IT uh, crash over uh, one night that really uh, mucked up our operations temporarily. So those types of things have also allowed us to deploy that plan uh, for a brief period. And uh, what we've learned is that you know we are not seeing a huge impact in terms of numbers, uh, in terms of uh, patients that are waiting, uh, and the length of these uh, uh, delays have, have uh, ranged between two and, and uh, I believe under 12 hours at its longest, uh, the longest of those six implementations. Uh, we do, you know, want to make sure that we are actually hearing about those folks because, of course, if an ED knows based on ReadyNet that we are not accepting transfers, perhaps they're not calling. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're still trying to make sure we're uh, understanding the magnitude of the impact. But I'm happy to say we have not found ourselves doing this on a regular basis or, you know, uh, and, and I think it has helped us get through periods of unusual uh, circumstances, either due to patient volume or otherwise. So you're saying you've had six... Six holes, six holes since December. That's correct. I see. And, and have you had an opportunity to survey those emergency rooms where they are being held and what the feedback is? Yes. Yeah, so during these holes, we continue to receive our, our our standard work is that we continue to receive the calls. So we know at the end of each of these episodes how many patients were presented that we. Um, asked to have weight. Uh -huh. um, I was referring to the ReadyNet potentially leading to some of these emergency rooms not calling because they were aware we're on that status. Um, however, the magnitude of the impact we've seen has been between two and ten patients, or sorry, zero and ten patients for these uh, implementations. Uh, the, the longer the implementation, the, the more patients um, that we uh, I think when, when, when we when you guys came up with this, there there was the concern of those individuals who'd be sitting in the emergency room and that domino that would affect. Mm -hmm. So I was interested to see how how that domino hurt the others. But you're not sensing that. No, I, I think the overall number of patients, if you count across the six uh, implementations, is fewer than 20. And uh, and you know, of course, there may be cases we're not hearing about, but we don't anticipate that it's a large number. And ironically, we found that Highland is our highest impacted uh, uh -huh. partner, as opposed to some of our non-AHS systems. Uh -huh. So one of the things we're looking at is we um, are outreaching to find out, again, as Dr. Saldana mentioned, how many are you holding on to without letting us know you're holding on to? And that's a much more qualitative assessment. Yes. Right now, we can literally track who's referring, who's not, who we've held and we're following that patient by patient record so we can actually track them. Um, but again, it ironically is, is highlighted. So I know you have a, several more slides. So yep, let's keep rolling here. Um, I'm gonna just touch on this very quickly. Um, this reflects our inpatient volume, the number of discharges per month. We run essentially full, we have 69 beds, as Dr. Tribble said. Uh, we generally have 69 people in those beds at any given time. Uh, next slide. And our length of stay hovers really around the industry average, which is uh, between uh, seven and nine days. And, and that's about typical for an acute care uh, psychiatric hospital. Can I ask you a question? Sure. <clears throat> As I asked the, our uh, rehab folks, uh, there's definitely a need for more psych beds in this county, right? Well, it's, it's, um, it's a complex question. How much time do you have? <laughs> um, I think... 
you know, we do find that at times uh, we are wishing we had more acute inpatient beds than we have. However, if we were to really unpack these numbers and we looked at who's in those acute inpatient beds that we have already on any given day, could it be that by improving flow in other areas of our system that we might not actually literally need more acute inpatient hospitals? If you were to really try and uh, you know, diagnose the problem, I think it does require a pretty broad system-wide look, including levels of care that even precede emergencies and decompensations right. and yes. voluntary levels of care where people can yes. uh, go and not really be technically in a hospital. Mm -hmm. Right. <coughs> okay. And we are on our own exploring step-down options that Alameda Health System can actually partner for on its own. Uh, we know that the county is preparing several sites and residential treatment and all these short-term options, but we're wondering, again, if it would be to our own best interest as well to provide support to our patients um, as well as whatever the county's doing. Mm -hmm. So there's exploration there. Absolutely. I'll just touch very briefly on our readmission rate, which hovers around uh, the national average, which uh, does vary by diagnostic makeup, but tends to run in the 10 to 20% range. Um, we are definitely wanting to see that number go down. Less is obviously better. That's another way you create capacity is by not having people come back to the hospital. Uh, and some of our efforts in quality improvement um, are really aimed at trying to better coordinate care for complex patients, those patients uh, who are most likely to uh, come back to the hospital. We're working on a project that really ensures not only that we're making an appointment for folks, but really looking at hard at our pet people actually getting to the aftercare that might help them stay out of the hospital. So, uh, you know, these are things that I think over time should help us move that uh, number in the right direction. Yeah, I'm surprised it's just 20%. You know, well, I, I would have thought that there, the the return rate would have been higher with the We average around 15%. Um, it's, I think... Interesting. Yeah, I think there are certainly folks who, who uh, we know about that are, are accounting for a large volume of that. But, you know, I think with good aftercare and appropriate step right. down, we really are able to help people recover and do so in a fairly durable way. Does that mentors on discharge kind of thing help them navigate Absolutely. the system? Absolutely. So you'll start seeing some of the effects of that because there, it's still pretty early on. In certainly program. places that have a longer body of experience would share our near-term experience of folks that are engaged in that program have a lower, late, lower rate of mm -hmm. uh, return to the hospital. Mm -hmm. But really, I think it's so helpful for folks to work with someone with lived experience mm -hmm. who really is speaking to them about steps they might take to really make their recovery work. Right. Uh, not to say that our efforts aren't worthwhile, but I think when they're buttressed by somebody who really has walked perhaps in shoes similar to theirs, mm -hmm. it's very powerful. Mm -hmm. Turn it over to Julie, our Director of Nursing. Okay, um, so PSSL, as you can see, there's a bit sawtooth, but for May we only had one, and our industry standard is seven to 10, so we're way below that. And there are a couple of things that I think are um, indicative of why we're so low in our assaults. And one we've talked about was just as the census management plan, so we're not allowing our patient load to get up to the 60s that it had been. And another one is that we've improved our communication with our early intervention plan. So patients that come in that we already have a plan in place that we've seen before, staff are more aware of their behaviors so that we can plan better for what may happen. So we're decreasing our assaults. I think that's a, a major um, improvement. Um, next slide. 
inpatient assaults um, has, has trended up a little bit in the last few months, but we, this is um, significant because we've had two patients that are the ones, two patients that are the two people that are continuing to raise this up. And we're working on, again, they have the EIP, the Early Intervention Plan in place as well. Um, but they're very difficult patients, so we're, we're working on and, and looking at how we can better deal with those two particular patients to, to get our assaults uh, decreasing on inpatient. Seclusion and restraints um, were zero in the month of April, and again, we're way below the average of eight to ten. Um, and we uh, attribute this again to the early intervention plan. Um, we're able to, to, to be ahead of the game with these patients, which is very important. And just to connect the earlier presentations, this is uh, the feedback that we received from our mock surveyors that they suggested should be published in terms of looking at the data, looking at the harm reduction uh, team, and the way that the information is triaged pretty rapidly mm -hmm. so that there can be immediate patient um, interaction and support. So, And we do have a harm reduction team that does round on these patients that have the early intervention plan, so they round on a daily basis with these folks and they talk to the staff and they work out strategies. Inpatient seclusion and restraints, uh, again, is down um, and um, we're way below on this for the same reasons I've spoken to before. Uh, last slide is the patient experience, and um, we're really happy that this it's trending back up our scores. And I attribute this to the fact the managers are now instituted in the units, uh, two-hour rounding, um, in which one of those hours uh, during their shift is without the computers, without anything around them to um, interfere with the, the patient relationship. So our therapeutic relationship has improved, and the staff are even a little bit more excited about dealing with their patients and so we're seeing the patient scores rise because they're they're getting this person-to-person uh, -person interaction um, within the unit so um, we've just started that a couple months ago and we have already seen a, a change in the um, patient satisfaction and one just final nuance I'd add in addition to our nursing um, really taking the lead we're also doing it as a multidisciplinary uh, support so that all of our, our our therapists our social workers our mental health specialists whomever that is, is actually our, our, doc, our doctors are, are actually looking at the quality. Um, we're, we're trying to make it contagious, so literally people who are bringing food, we're trying to kind of import to them, even if they were only saying hi to a patient, but that actually starts at the PES. Although it's an inpatient measure, it starts at the door. So a person could be rating how they felt, how hot it was. Um, did we really support them across the board? So we're, it's, it's much more team-centered as opposed to weighing just on our nursing. So just to link it to some of the PES stuff that Dr. Tribble's talking about, we really have emphasized that as part of the, the triage uh, unit that we built there, that right. service unit, that really along with assessment and getting early treatment, a big part of that is welcoming and actually helping people who are often in our hospital, not because it was their idea to come, to feel like, oh, I'm here to be helped. And this is a doctor who's talking with me and, and really wants to help me get well. So just to wrap up, as we mentioned before, these are some of the things that we're really looking to improve our quality, both at the assessment, the screening, again, at John George, but also across our system, how we can most effectively recognize and support uh, those patients, and then looking at the safety across um, the environment of care as a whole, some measures that we're looking at. Uh, I, I want to say that I, I sat in when the feds came to because of the complaint, and I just wanted to compliment the three of you. I, I thought you had 
your presentation and your comments and your responses to that group were very, very impressive. I left feeling this is a great place. So uh, when my family sends me, I will definitely. <laughs> and we will give you an VIP experience. May I ask one? Thank you. Um, I have one question. So uh, when you spoke about the you know uh, the couple of additions that you might have to your team for the continuity of care for the you know uh, where in the business unit do they house like will they be in at John George and floating around to the other community hospitals? Or Excellent question. Here? The way we're visioning it is, is as a spokes in, in a wheel essentially. So we're looking at John George as the hub, okay. but not the center of the treatment. And so the new director will be coming on board because we think there's a lot to be gained by a team approach, mm -hmm. inpatient and outpatient. And that person will be overseeing services, as I mentioned, across the system. So they will be visiting their staff who are housed at Highland, who are doing services across the units. But what we're trying, again, is to really focus on um, making sure that from outpatient through inpatient that there's continuity of care and support and triage. And there's some work that we're working out with our health pack partners with the county and internally to really start to do some coordinated efforts really systemically starting on July 1st. That really speaks to that. Very exciting. So, thank you. Thank you. There's three or four more slides here. Are they? That's the next presentation. Thank you. We have another presentation. Yes. Related to not Thank you. Oh, it is you. Okay. You can so you all remember Adrian Smith, who is our director of RIS. He has five minutes, do you Yes, you have eight, eight minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Am I doing this from memory? Um, so if we start with the post-acute SBU, so we do it in the same order. Um, we, I looked at the um, volume of occurrence reporting, which has stayed steady. Um, it's a 4% decrease from quarter four, um, but when we compare that to census, it seems appropriate. Um, we did in, include some rounding and some education with the staff to try and make sure that that wasn't a trend that would continue. Um, if we look at the harm events that occurred, um, the biggest majority were C events which means that the event occurred it reached the patient but it did not cause um, patient harm which is good news for the patient but it's still something that we want to look at and examine those in more depth with the department leaders because it's a it's a, an error that's reached the patient there was one severe harm um, at um, Fairmont Hospital and that was a code blue where the patient did expire but it was a patient that was um, it was an expected demise, um, so it, it wasn't something that was an error or um, an omission of malpar. So I wouldn't have put that in the category of error or... So it's an event that causes the way harm it occurred. So it wasn't an error, but it was an event that caused, that okay. caused patient harm. And those Are classifications... Are we all going to have that event eventually? It does happen to us all eventually, yeah. Tax, yeah. taxes and, and expiration. <laughs> but not when you're in. <laughs> yeah, that's just, I'm with you. I, yeah, okay. If we look at the post-acute, um, if we look at the post-acute ACEBU, 35% of all events were patient behavior. Um, that's a pretty um, 
that, that's not changed from the previous quarter. But it is a category that Richard and his staff are doing a lot of work with their patient groups. And as he described earlier, they have some very different patient groups. The Alameda, um, the Alameda facilities have a very different patient mix to the Fairmont um, facility. So the, the work that Richard's doing is aimed in different ways at those two different groups. An example of patient behavior, I don't, I don't know what that means. So it can be an assault to a staff member, it can be an assault to another patient, it can be verbal or physical, it can be refusal of treatment, it can be, uh, it can be many kind of different behavior um, exhibited by the patient. Okay. Um, the follow-up has been gradually increasing and um, we've seen a, an upward trend in the follow-up in the speed and the and the quality of follow-up within that and that's from Richard's um, work and from some additional training that risk management provided to that staff group also. So this is all this is all post acute this is just so the post acute rehab and, 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 and nursing so not John's works. This is related to the prior. This is related to the prior and patient behavior. You're having sniff. assaults of patient behaviors in, in the SNPs. Not at John, but in the SNPs. In the SNPs. So it. the first two slides I'm, I'm, I'm showing you are about the post-acute SBU, and the second two slides will be about John George. So we'll see okay. the similar data for the two different SBUs. Mm -hmm. um, the, thought that, the thought was that we will present risk data in the same way as we were presenting the rest of the data, so it gave you a rounded picture. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. So um, we go to the um, behavioral health SBU. We can see that there, there has been um, a slight decrease in the, in the volume of reporting month by month, although overall across the quarter, that's a 12% increase from Q4 of 2016. Again, to ensure that that downward trend isn't something that we're concerned about, risk management has been rounding, um, and in collaboration with the Director of Nursing and the other leadership um, at John George, been providing education as required. So what you're saying is you, in order to ensure that it's not just people, not just staff is not reporting events. We're, we're encouraging them right. and making sure that people know how to use the system, correct? Right. It, we see a similar picture in the in the harm events, that it's the biggest volume of harm events that were reported were seized. So the the at the event or the or the error reached the patient but did not cause harm. There was one event that there was one event, it was a 911 activation. Um, it was a patient that was admitted and unfortunately condition deteriorated and, and he um, expired before 911 were able to arrive. The care he got was exemplary before before that and it's not a reflection on John George at all. 46% of all events at John George are patient behaviour events which includes assaults and that really just echoes the data that's been presented to you by the leadership from that SBU. There were several alleged sexual assaults in the first quarter of this year. All events were very thoroughly investigated by the staff there and only one was substantiated. Behavioural Health has the best follow-up statistics for the entire organisation with no events open for more than 10 days in the safety alert system and I just want to give that, that shout out to the staff there. They work really, really hard and really have a focus on patient safety at John George. That concludes my presentation. Any questions?
I don't know what I'm to do with this. It is the schedule for what's upcoming, and I don't. I think I'm just going to have to leave this to Dr. Jamali here. Did you want to? Do you have a report from closed session? Yes, in closed session, the uh, board approved the credentialing reports from each of the facilities. Took no other action. Is there any request for public comment? No. We are adjourned. Thank you, everyone.